I've got a note here that the book, Historical Collections of Revivals, is priced at £10.55 and not £10. It costs 55 pence more. Phyllis will order copies tomorrow. Um, so if you want a copy, you, you better ask Phyllis tonight. It's worth everyone reading it. If you are a reader, don't just buy it, because if you're not someone who really reads books, it'll be superfluous. You really have to read it. To, uh, it's small print, and unless you're a quick reader and an avid reader, uh, in ten years' time you'll still be trying to plod through the first chapter. Uh, so there we are. Okay, we're going on with Rome. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 and um, verse um, 16 17 and 18 and um, we read in verse uh, 16 know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. And I want to deal tonight with uh, that part of scripture uh, and the following conclusion that Paul makes and um, if you look at it um, just to keep your finger there and turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 30 the, really the conclusion of what we've been saying all the, or we're saying this morning is moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. In other words, um, if God predestinates you, that means uh, God sets out prior to your acknowledgement of it and sets your destination. That's predestination. In other words, if you get on a train bound for Liverpool... Well, if it's British Rail, you might not get there, but um, especially at the moment. But if you normally, if the train ran its course, you would get there. But no doubt the guards would step off halfway down the line now at Crewe and you wouldn't get there. But generally speaking, whatever destination you're going to, you should get there. Now, when God predestinates something, that means he's predestinated your place. And as we were discussing this morning, you are all predestinated. God's gone and prepared, Christ has prepared a mansion for you, and there is no way that you won't arrive. The only thing is you're not sure what mansion you've got. That's where the catch is, which we will come on to at a later date. Um, but there is predestination. All right, you all agree with that. Now, you will notice that it says there in verse 30, them he also called. God never calls someone who he hasn't predestinated. 
he called the people he predestinated. You say, well, what about the scripture, many are called and few are chosen? Quite right. Many are called, few are chosen. But the chosen ones are different from the called ones. But I don't want to go into that just at this minute. But if you think about it, it's something to do with the difference between being on the new heaven and the new earth, and whether you're in the four and twenty elders or four bees or one of the cherubim. Anyway, we won't discuss that. Um, but that's predestination. Okay, look down with me then at... Um, and what I wanted to point out from verse uh, 30, you'll have to excuse me for a Two hands to blow my nose, it's so big. Um, and the handkerchief. <laughs> oh. Sorry about that. That's the way I tell them. Um, what, 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 um, what we have to realize <coughs> is I've got a cold. Um, justification, if I'm justified, it guarantees I'm going to be sanctified. So, Never ever get bound up and think that sanctification is, is a, a, a necessary work beyond justification. By being justified, I'm one of the called. And because I'm one of the called, I'm one of the glorified, so I will be sanctified. So don't believe people that tell you that sanctification is something that um, is doubtful. It's certain. All right? You are certainly going to be sanctified. Now, you can do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is you obey God. The hard way is you don't obey him and he disciplines you till you do. But you will be sanctified. And that is sure. And therefore, you need never get uptight worrying about whether you'll be sanctified or you won't. You're bound to be. Because God will sanctify you. He will set you apart and he will deal with your life, and there's no way round it. Ask Rob, he found out, didn't you, Rob? Tried every little scheme, you know, he was expert at it. Uh, but there was no way God let someone off the hook once he gets them. And it's rather like a fish, you know, a fish can always get off a hook, but when God gets you, I want to tell you, there is no escape. And he will deal with your life, and he will put you in situations and he'll put you in corners until you are sanctified. And then he'll take you home to glory because at that point you can enter into the glorification that took place before the foundation of the world. However, in time you have to work it out. And so God will do it. Now because God will do it, you can have confidence and certainty that you will arrive. Now that's glorious, isn't it? Hmm? Hmm? Well, isn't it? Say, so, well, what about free will? You know, my wife asked about free will this morning. Bless her. Um, you know, and the thing is that really we have choice, but we don't have free will because no one's free. And we're going on to look at it in these two verses. Francis asked a question this morning. Uh, which actually I was coming on to in these two verses, and 
obviously by looking at them you'll realize it answers her question. That's why you have to deal with everything logically because, you see, Paul knew exactly what question would crop up in people's minds. So the very first thing he says, What? No, you're not. Uh, you remember he says that in verse, No, you're not, in verse 3. Knowing that Christ in verse 9. Knowing this in verse 6. Um, and now, Know ye not. Uh, we come on to in verse 15. And um, why he asked that question is because he's come on to the statement about grace and he's talked about our positional stand in God, where we are in God, our standing in God, which is positional. Then he comes on to the experimental and he said that we mustn't allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, that we should obey it in the lust thereof, neither yield our uh, members instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, in verse 13. Then he promises in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not? And you see, the whole argument he's coming to is a very different argument from the first argument. And I want to point out how it's different. In verse um, uh, 1 of Romans 6, his question is this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? Now, in verse 15, his question alters. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Now, you notice the change. One is asking, shall we... Uh, Shall we sin that grace may abound? In the other one, he's saying, what? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? In other words, the question has changed now with the argument that he's been putting out that we're under grace, we're not under law. Um, so he's gone beyond the sin that grace may abound, which was the argument that came forth from chapter 5. Do you remember? Uh, uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then the question comes, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Right? Now he's just dealt with the question, and he says, but you're not under the law, under grace. Now the obvious question, which is what Francis asked, and what most people would ask, is, yippee, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And so immediately he asks the question, what then? Now because we're not under the law but under grace, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? It's the question that immediately springs to mind, isn't it? When you start preaching grace and telling people about grace, the first thing they feel is that it's all right to sin. Why, I heard um, not many months ago, I was talking with a pastor and, and he was telling me that um, one of the things that led him up the creek was that 
he met pastors who used to go out and minister and preach at conferences. And after they preached at a conference, they had this saying that every minister must relax. Now there's relaxing and relaxing. But these ministers felt that they weren't under law, they were under grace, and so they used to leave the meeting at about 11 o'clock at night, and they'd go off to a local nightclub. Drinking and whatever else you do in local nightclubs. Now, that doesn't savour of grace. But their excuse was, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. We've been liberated. Now, it wasn't long before they ended up in all kinds of sin. Adultery being but one, drunkenness being but another, drugs being another. Now the slide came when someone turned around and said, well, you know, everyone's got to relax. Well, usually when I want to relax, I run a hot bath. I mean, you don't have to go to a nightclub and fill yourself with liquor. And in nightclubs, especially in that part of the world, um, the entertainment's a bit garish, to say the least. And, I mean, you get yourself in problems. Now, this chap had come across this situation and people had preached to him that you're not under law any longer, you're under grace. But if it's taught correctly, immediately that you're pointed out you're not under law, you're under grace, what then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law? But under grace? That was the first question Paul asked. Now, obviously, he asked that question because the true preaching of grace will automatically bring that thought into your mind. It should be a natural reaction. When you hear grace preached, it's an automatic thing to think, well, you can get away with anything. That's why I asked the question. He knows he's a good man with a good ability to argue. He knows that the first thing, thought a person will have when he hears the doctrine of not under law, under grace, is good. We can go out and have a good time. I mean, Gerald Coates wrote a book telling you he could. Not that any of it was true, but I mean, he did write a book on it. And you see, he hadn't read the next verse. What then? And so once you get that doctrine, you better wait till you read the next few verses before you do anything. Don't go off on an idea. Yippee, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. It means I haven't got to keep the Judaic law. Uh, I'm free now. Hallelujah. Jesus has set me free. I can live any way I want to. And you go down the tube pretty quick. Because you have ignored the next verse which says, what then? Shall we sin? The grace may abound. God forbid. And we need to realize um, that that is a problem. Now, the whole thing is dealt with by Paul in verses 15 to 23. And um, in verse 15, what shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. And then he goes on and gives you the objection to that 
kind of doctrine in the form of a principle. And here's the principle in verse 16. Know you not, to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now that is the principle um, that he's bringing out. That is the reason that you mustn't sin. But we'll come back to that. Verse 17 and 18 is the application of that principle. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Verse 19 is a general appeal to the logic of that principle. He then appeals to man's logic, saying, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. Now it's an appeal to people. That's the logic of it. Now he appeals. Okay, and puts an appeal to people. And then um, he goes on in uh, verse 20 to 23 and he expounds the and uh, enforces the appeal that he's making to people for when you were the servants of sin you were free from righteousness what fruit had you then in those things whereof you're now ashamed for the end of those things is death but now being made free from sin and become the servants to god you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he goes and really he wants to enforce his argument. Now what we're going to do is go back and we're going to break each verse down and see what it really means. But I just wanted to point out the way it's constructed. Paul was a great man who was a very logical. And a Christian must be a good arguer. Now... There is a false piety that says, well, we should never argue. No, you know, one thing you never argue about is Christianity or politics. You know, uh, lots of people say that. There's one thing you never, they never discuss, Christianity or religion or politics, they'll say. Um, but Paul, you notice, always puts all his epistles in the form of an argument. And all the great uh, men of old were always able to argue Christian doctrine and put people right. And we have got to learn the ability to be able to come with true doctrine and refute error. Man of God's got to be handy at arguing. Now, of course, there are people that like to hear their own voice and argue for the, the sake of just arguing. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you've got to be logical, clear, concise and very, very much of a sharp mind. Uh, which, of course, if you're a Christian, you get over a period of time. Uh, by hearing others preach, you begin to understand how everything fits in, and then you can argue, full of logic. Unless you're a woman, and then, of course, we are logic of age. Um, but generally speaking, you should be full of logic, you know? And, bless them, Women will always move by intuition. It's one of their gifts. Now, there's nothing wrong with the gift of intuition. It's a glorious gift of God to women folk. Men don't have it. 
at least not to the degree that women have it. That is why women will go quicker into error than any man. But they can also move quicker into truth. Trouble is they just don't stay there that long. Uh, unless they're guided and helped. That's why God set the man as head over the woman. And don't they need a head? Yes, they do. I must just excuse my. made it if we had to sing as well oh dear okay and in Romans chapter 6 verse 15 you know they haven't found a cure for the common cold I know a cure for it don't catch it um, what then he asks alright and we go on and he anticipates the question before it arises except this morning uh, we hadn't got to that verse and Francis anticipated the question and gave it before I got round to preaching on it. But bless her, now we're making up for it and I'm sure she's happy. Now, there are two errors today that you come across. And these two, I beg your pardon, two errors. And these two errors are the type, <laughs> type of errors that um, we need to know about. The first is the moralist. Now, the moralist... Um, is the man who takes the moral and ethical code of Christianity and says that's what's needed. I need to have the moral and the ethical code to know the way I should live. I need a set of rules. There are a lot of people like that. They need to know what's right and wrong, don't they? And they need to know. And they've got in society, you know, you've got the middle class kind of code of ethics. You know the pious claptrap of evangelicals and religious people where they smile sweetly, they're inoffences to everyone. Uh, they, they won't give you a straight answer. They'll never kind of stand up for what they believe. You know, they're humble Christians. Um, do you know the type of person I mean? The moralist. And um, it's a deadly error. Now, those type of people hate it when you say there's no law. We're not under law, we're under grace. They say, well, what? You can't live. You've got to have standards. You've got to know where you are. You've got to this, you've got to that. And what you're teaching about grace means that uh, the law's done away. Well, of course, they've misunderstood the doctrine totally. And what they want is, instead of the law of God in the conscience... What they're asking for is a code of ethics to live by. In other words, you know, I won't do anyone any harm unless they do me harm. I won't uh, hurt someone. I mean, you know, the great Masonic code, uh, you know, Freemasons, they have a wonderful code of ethics. One of them is you must always help a brother as long as it's not in detriment to yourself. Well, I mean, that's a useful code, isn't it? Uh, <coughs> what a humbug. That's one of their codes, you know. That's why they're of the devil. Masonry, Freemasonry, witchcraft, really. When it goes into the chapters, Rosicrucians and that, but we won't necessarily deal with that. Um, and one thing we have to realize, 
by the law is the knowledge of sin. And if I have an ethical code to live by, what I'll get is a good knowledge of sin, but I won't actually get into holiness. I need grace. I need to come out from under law in order to come into holiness. Now, one of the greatest perpetrators of this um, school of ethics was probably the public school ethics, uh, which was roused by a man whose name I always keep forgetting, so I wrote it down, Thomas Arnold of Rugby, Rugby Public School. And you remember he was the great reformer and the great one of teaching a gentleman to be a gentleman. Of course, that is totally against. Now, it was purported that he was a Christian. And if you watch some or read books like Tom Brown's School Days or something, you might believe that there was a Christian man. He wasn't a Christian man. What he had was a code of ethics. And those ethics weren't Christianity. It's totally false concept of Christianity. Now, you do all understand that, what I'm talking about. A moralist could be a Hindu, a Muslim, or anything, couldn't he? In fact, there was, um, if any of you watched your television, you saw that um, there was a Muslim on, was it a Muslim or a Hindu? I can't remember, Muslim, I think, on, you know, in Birmingham, complaining, you know, that people didn't understand his religion. Quite right. I don't, and I don't want to. And the second error is that it doesn't matter. People say, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you're under grace. That's the second big error. You know, they say, well, you don't do anything. Uh, and they'll, they're kind of arguing, very well, because I'm under grace, I'll do everything I choose. Now, they're deadly errors, both of them. Firstly, because the scriptures are not a code of ethics, it's a way of life by the Spirit. Secondly, the law is spiritual and I'm carnal, and therefore I can't apprehend or, 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 or live according to the law of God unless I have a real birth by the Spirit of God, and then I have to come into grace and live by His power. So the first thing you can't do, second thing is, well, I can do what I like because I'm under grace, was a question that Francis asked. I mean, now it's a logical conclusion. And any true preacher that is preaching the gospel will always be accused of firstly taking people out from under law and secondly of suggesting that you can do anything you want. Now those are two misunderstandings that will always occur. And so, a preacher must always do two things. And anyone who's preaching truth, you'll always know whether he's a gospel preacher by two things. Firstly, or A, um, he's exposed to those accusations that he's suggesting you can do what you like, because you're under grace. And secondly, he should guard against this danger by warning people that's not what he's saying. <laughs> now, that... Is, is the balance, you know. Firstly, you've got to preach grace to the extent that people really believe you're saying that, and then after that, you come to what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's the true balance in preaching. And you have to...
Excuse me. Um, right, now let's look at verse 15 then. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Now, I want you to notice the word sin there. Now, the word sin is not basically um, meaning one sin. It's mean living a life of sin. Um, means habitual sin or persistent sin, a settled life of sin. What it doesn't mean is just going out and goofing. We all do that at times. We all make mistakes and we all goof. What it's talking about is living a settled life of sin. Uh, don't get the idea when you read the word sin there that it's referring to just one mistake or, or a mistake here and a mistake there. It's not. It's referring to a settled way of life of sin. All right? Um, because uh, there's none without sin. No, not one. And even after you're a Christian and God's changed you and converted you and broken the power, you've still got the power of sin where? In the flesh. Not the rain, but the powers operating on your flesh. And you mustn't let it rain there. You must mortify the deeds of the flesh. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But I'm, not talk I'm talking about now the people who live under the reign and rule of sin. And if you let yourself come under the reign and rule of sin, you're in a very dangerous position. Uh, though it can only rule in your flesh. All right? Um, the second thing, not under law, is important. You're not under the law, um, but under grace. Now, what it means by being under the law, to spell it out, means that a man under law is trying to gain his salvation by the way he lives. Now, I know I'm saved, not by what I do, but what Christ has done for me. But what I do is going to affect the way I live. And it's going to affect my eternal destiny as to what stage I'm going to get to in all eternity. But we'll come on to that in Revelation. But the thing is, now, I'm not under law. I'm not trying to achieve my salvation. I'm not trying to get into God by doing this or doing that. I know I can't. What I'm doing, I've given all that up, and by faith I believe God, and because I believe God, I'm justified by faith. It's not by my actions. In other words, it's no good thinking when I get up in the morning at 6 o'clock in the morning and read my Bible for an hour, have a quiet time, pray, get in the car, go to work, rejoicing, singing psalms to God, have a wonderful day, go home, then I'm nearer to God than if I get up a bit late because the alarm clock didn't go off, I rush my breakfast, I swallow my baked beans so they give me a funny tummy all day, I, I, I feel grouchy and grotchety and, you know, a bit mean and, you know, this and that and find the central heating's too hot in the house I'm painting so I moan and... Then I find, you know, at the end of the day, I find at the end of the day that, well, I must be further from God. Well, it doesn't affect my standing with God because I'm not coming to God on the basis of what I do. I'm not coming onto the basis to, uh, to God on the basis of my works. I'm coming onto the basis to God on the basis of faith. And because I come as faith, 
that is irrelevant. Now, though it's irrelevant, I have to be careful. For, shall we sin? Because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. I'm not suggesting we should sin or take it casually. What I'm saying is that my relationship with God is not altered by what I do. And I'll have to just... Never be a preacher with a cold. You know, I wonder whether to stay at home tonight, actually. I nearly did. I thought, well, I'll let Peter do it. Do it. Probably do it better. Oh, dear. At least he wouldn't be blowing his nose every five minutes. Um, it's probably because I've got a big nose. Know ye not, he then goes on to say in verse 16, um, and he's appealing now to logic, as I said, to common sense, and he's going to argue the standpoint purely on a logical point from common sense. And as I say, uh, we all need to understand that. Um, and keeping quiet or not being argumentative is not holiness. You've got to stand out for what you believe. In other words, what I said this morning about the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church, now lots of people won't like it. They won't like it if I criticize the Brethren or the Baptist or, or the uh, Pentecostals or the... Um, Well, I can't think of another group. Presbyterians. What? The Methodists? Didn't I say Methodists? Well, you know, they won't like it. But that doesn't stop me having a good bullseye snipe at them. Uh, because, you see, what you've got to do is... Um, You've got to have the positive and the negative in the preaching of the gospel. It's no good being so positive you leave the negative out. Because if you do that, then basically you're not preaching balanced truth. And sometimes you've got to give examples of the negative. And I don't worry about it. I know it offends. And the scripture says, Blessed is he that isn't offended with my words. And if you're offended, so what? I don't care. Go somewhere else where they won't offend you if you've got sensibilities like that. Um, Jesus Christ, when he walked about, he always offended people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people, they got mad at him. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They did all sorts. And all the time they felt he was getting at them. And I want to tell you something, he was. And I spend my time trying to get at people. You say, well, that doesn't help them. You'd be surprised. A constant dripping of water bringeth a flood. Um, weareth away the stone. It, it, in the end, it gets at them because it goes boing, boing, boing. And you see, truth... In the end, applied by the hammer. You know, God's word is sometimes in the scriptures said as a hammer, sometimes it's a sword. And you have to just keep pushing truth home, pushing truth home, pushing truth home. 
hammering truth home, hammering truth home, and hammering, you know, hammer in the morning, boom, boom. And you've got to keep at it. Uh, and it's quite biblical to do so. And uh, people say, well, why do you go on about them? Well, I suppose because I'm prejudiced. But I'm in good company. So was Paul. And so was Peter. So was Jesus. And you see, you say, well, yeah, but there wasn't an Anglican or a Catholic church then. That's quite right, there wasn't. But there was just this Catholic spirit in the Sadducees and Pharisees, just as a religious spirit in the others. Terrible it was, anyway. Anyway, God dealt with it, but there we are. So, a man has got to have manliness. And Paul, here he writes, Know ye not? And he's now bringing an argument out. Argumentative, Paul was. Know ye not? that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, I want you to notice two things in this. Know ye not, that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whom you obey. Now, you must notice two very important things about the authorized version. Firstly, Yield doesn't give the true intent of it. What it really means is to hand yourself over to. Now, when you yield, it means you give ground. You know, in, if you yield to someone, you give way to them or, or give ground to them. But in actual fact, in the Greek, and the meaning that used to be was you hand yourself over to someone. And the word servant... Uh, that's translated in the authorized version is actually slave. And servant, you know, a servant will get wages and a servant will, you know, be hired and he'll get wages and he'll work for a boss and uh, if he doesn't work for the boss he doesn't get wages. Uh, but it's not talking about a servant serving, this is talking about a slave. Now a slave doesn't have any rights. A slave's owned by his master. And that's why uh, Paul wrote here, to whom you give yourselves over to, as a slave to obey, his slave you are, whom you obey. In other words, he takes possession of you. You've given yourself over to him, he has possession of you. Now that's the real meaning of it. A bit more frightful than the general meaning, isn't it? Hmm? It's more aggressive, more factual and poignant than, than he's really put over. And you'll notice too um, that sin is personified once again by Paul. He says that um, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Sin is once again personified. You can't uh, give yourself as a slave uh, unless it's personified. And so he personifies sin here. And notice the difference. Sin is one thing and obedience is the other. And the two things, one is contrary to the other. You're either sinning or you're obedient. 
And um, obedience means, of course, if you've got to be obedient, you're not lawless. Without law, are you? You've got to know what you're going to obey, haven't you? In order to obey. So Paul's argument about not being under law doesn't mean that you do away with obedience. Because you either sin or obey. Do you follow what I'm saying? You're his servants whom you obey. You either obey sin or you obey God. That's the two choices. You're either obeying sin or you, and the man of sin, which is serpent, or you obey God. Now those are the only two choices you have in life. Say, so, well, what about myself? Haven't I got free will? No, dear. You're either obeying serpent or you obey God. And that's it. Everyone's in absolute slavery to one or the other. Isn't that incredible? Now, we like to think we can choose what we want to do with life and we're free. No one's a free agent. <laughs> if you obey, you're a slave of sin. You absolutely are owned by the serpent. If you obey God, he, he owns you. And you're his. You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you've got to see that you are a slave to God. And um, it's important. Now, I want you also to notice this. It says, sin unto death, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, notice sin is unto death. Sin is rebellion. That's unto death. Or obedience unto... Now, what would you have thought the opposite of death was? Life. But it isn't, is it? Now, why do you think that is? Why? Well, if it was of obedience unto life, it wouldn't be grace you were living in any longer. It would be uh, works, wouldn't it? Therefore, because you obey, you're not actually getting life by obedience. You have life, as they said. But what you are becoming is more like God and living in a right and walking in a right relationship with God. That you are. But you have life from God because you've been born again. That's why Paul was very careful to put not life there, but righteousness. Everything fits in with his argument, doesn't it? Very logical, you know. And so, I want to sum it up. Um, and we become, basically, in verse 16, we become slaves to the powers we yield to. Everyone becomes a slave to the power they yield to. Anytime you become a slave to the power you yield to, and that is something that's horrific. Do you realize when you give yourself over to sin, you give yourself into the hands of the devil to be a weapon against God's kingdom? A regenerate and saved but in your flesh area, which will tend to cause loss in your soul, and your soul won't develop. So in that day, you'll only be a babe in Christ. You'll never have developed or have any fruit in your life. 
and you'll be saved as by fire, which will be most uncomfortable. You'll suffer loss, but you will be saved. However, when you yield yourself to God, God begins to develop your soul, develop your life, develop fruit, and you have to live in obedience, and you become righteous and walk in the right relationship with him. And you become his slave, the love slave, the bond servant of Jesus Christ. And that is an important step. Everyone needs to live like that. I'm not my own. I have no right to myself. I have no right to do what I want. I've got to do what God wants. And so we learn five things. One, you have a choice. of going into sin or secondly you have the choice of obedience in other words to put it into plain English you're either in Adam or you're in Christ and you live in Adam or you live in Christ alright now I know that your old Adam's done away with but as I pointed out before though your old man's done away with you've got to put off in the flesh the works of the old man the old habits haven't you do you remember we talked about the old habits going? Now, when you're born again, though your old man's done away, he's crucified with Christ, one of the things that has to happen is your flesh is still, you know, got the habits. And those habits have to be mortified and dealt with. And so there's the two options there. Um, the reign of sin, the reign of grace, and of course you remember the reign of sin now can only be in your mortal flesh. It could never be in your spirit. Thirdly, um, something to note in this verse, is that they're both powers of total opposites. Sin or obedience. Rebellion or obedience. There are two opposites in this verse, and they're eternally opposed to each other, and the results they produce are absolutely opposite. One is death, the other is righteousness. And they're two opposites. Sin produces death, obedience produces righteousness. And you need to remember that. Fourthly, it's impossible to be slaves of both. And you better make a note of that. It's impossible to be slaves of both. And I'll prove that by just turning to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, makes it abundantly clear, except it's in chapter 7. And in Matthew, chapter 7, We have a warning of our Lord Jesus Christ to people and he says this. I beg your pardon, it was chapter 6, verse 24. I could not figure out where it had gone to. Okay, he says this in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right? You remember we talked about that earlier on, didn't we? You can't serve two masters. 
You're either a slave of God or you're a slave of things in this world. Now everyone's a slave of one or the other. And that's awful, but we are. So there is no way you can serve two masters. Okay, now the fifth thing is we proclaim our master by what we do. And that's the awful thing. The way you know what master a person's got is you just have to look at the fruit of their life. And once again, we can see that in Matthew chapter 7 this time. Uh, it says this in verse 15. Matthew 7. It's after Matthew 6. So you should be there. It says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening wolves now false prophets come with sheep's clothing and will bleat like sheep the sound will sound right but it's the inside where the ravening wolf is in other words there are a lot of people who come and they've got the religious guys on, but it's when you hit them on the real hard spot, you discover what's really in them. Huh? Drive a person and gold a person, and, and with a sheep it'll get out the way. But you go to someone, you know, who's a ravening wolf, and, and it takes a little while, and you've got to know how to lance them right. And that is what a preacher's job is. Preacher's skill is knowing how to really hit someone on the raw. That is the whole art of being a preacher. God spends years perfecting people who can hit people on the raw. Excuse me. Um, now let's read on then in verse um, verse 16 you shall know them by their fruits do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit you shall know them. Now what fruit is it talking about? Okay. Come on, tell me. Okay, can't tell me. Speak up. What fruit is it talking about? Fruit of... What did you say? Righteousness in their life. That's George would like to say. How many agree with George? Well, no, no, don't be unfair to George. Come on, how many of you think that? All right, what else is it talking about? What is it talking about then? Fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's fruit of righteousness, for goodness sakes, isn't it? You agreed with George. Put your hand up then. You agreed with George. Come on. You're a brown. What? <laughs> fruit of the Spirit. 
Okay, who agrees it's fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of righteousness? Who agrees with that? Hands up. Yeah, you'd agree with that. Hands up. Those who agree. No, go on, put your hands up. Come on, have the courage of your convictions. Okay, who believes that? Okay, okay, anyone else got an answer? Yes, Shane. What makes you think that? Well, what Christ said you could gain the whole, whole world and lose your own soul. Paul said preaching to others he could become a castaway. Actually, that's a red herring, what I just said. Um, I'll tell you why it doesn't mean what George said or what Charlie said or what the rest of you that put your hands up said. Simple. You just have to read the next few verses. I mean, the answer's always there, isn't it? Paula was already looking at him and pointing him out to the person next to her, weren't you? Wasn't that what you were doing? Bun? She couldn't find what? She couldn't find where I was reading from. What? You lost your... Oh, wow. I attributed it to you, some virtue that... Pardon? You what? You did look at it. Yeah, it gives you the answer there. Because, look, I mean, you know, it, it is really unfair because if you read your Bible, you know the answer. But there we are. Not everyone, wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, in thy name cast out devils, and, done, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Rain descended, floods came, and down the house fell, bum 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 and the other man, you know, okay, uh, the house stayed on the rock, didn't it? On the sand, it fell down. Got it the wrong way around. But thing is, thing is, you can do the works without having the right spirit. But we're created in Christ Jesus under good works, and what Jesus was talking about here was you can, you've got to do the works with the knowledge of him. And fruit that's lasting, and by their fruit you shall know them. One of the ways you'll know a person who's got real fruit is that the work in the person's life lasts. Like produces like. In other words, if you get a church where no one's committed to Christ, where there's a lot of, you know, kind of backbiting and uh, a lot of sectarianism and this person's going after this person, that person after that person and that. What you've got in actual fact is false fruit. Say, so, but they have big churches, so they might. But they're not real churches of Christ. The thing that marks a true church of Christ is the love of God, the love of the brethren and the presence of God in the midst. 
Of course, the gifts of the Spirit are there as well. But not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, it's only going to be those that really know Christ. Now, do understand that the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit you should be produced in your life by your new birth. What Christ was here referring to is a service to the Master. We're talking about serving, aren't we? We were talking about serving. No, you're not to whom you yield your members, servants to obey. Eh? And so we're talking about service here. And service, one of the signs is a church that's built on Christ is built uh, on a basis where people's lives are transformed inwardly where they grow together, they begin to love each other, they want to worship together, they want to be part of a family. And that is important. And we need to see that's what God's building. Now that's true fruit. The false fruit is the mushroom experience. Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a man who ministered round here with a gift of healing, uh, not far from here, about 10 miles or 15 miles away and used to manage to get people to fall over and get 300 or 400 to his meetings on a Tuesday night, or maybe it was 200, or evangelistically speaking, it could only have truthfully been 150. I don't know. But he used to get a lot of people, people would come in coach roads to see his meetings. But what it was was not true fruit. Because in the end, what did it leave? And that is the choice. You see, what is God trying to build? What is Christ after building? Hmm? Well, what's he building? Can anyone tell me what he's building? His church. And what won't prevail against it? So, if we find that a church, uh, you know, mushrooms and then evaporates, we know... Uh-uh, wrong spirit, wrong way. Now, another thing is, you can build a big church, but there are schisms and divisions and hatreds and emulations and no real dealings of God in the life of the individuals in the church. There, you've got a false church as well. So, look at the fruit in a church, and the fruit in a church tells you a lot about the man that produces it. And by their fruit you shall know them. I must be a mess <laughs> looking at you, Lord. <laughs> Dear Father. <laughs> you might as well all quit now. Um, the <laughs> just came to mind, you know. Um, the fruit, that's the fruit, and we need to understand that. Now, what I can see is this, that one thing has happened. There's been progression in everyone's life. Everyone's gone on with God, has got a deeper walk with God today than when they first came. Things have happened in your life. God's changed you in tremendous ways. That's fruit. Now, that's the way you know whether it's a wolf or a true sheep. The true shepherd voice, the one who's following Christ will build something that lasts. That's why when I hear about Chingford and all the divisions and, you know, this one's fighting that one and they're gro broken down into groups of ten. Okay, they had 200, but for how long? Two years, three years, and then they're fighting at each other. 
snapping at each other's throats. Well, look at somewhere where I know, you know, there's a place over in Texas somewhere. They're fighting at each other. I know that now. They were fighting when I was there. That's not true shepherding, not true sheep. And, and you see, the fruit is apparent after a time. Now a work should grow more and more solid. Not more and more flimsy. More and more established should be the lives and the hearts of the people in the work. More and more committed. And if you don't get that, what it shows is there's something wrong with the ministry and the person that's ministering. That's the way you can choose between one and the other. By their fruit, you should know them. A man came here once and he, he started waffling to me after the meeting. He was bought by someone and he started waffling about this and that. And he was a charismatic of the extreme ilk. And he went on a bit and he, he, I said to him, Listen, friend. I said, I'll show you my faith by my works. Look at all these people. Now you show me your faith. He said, well, people have been blessed. I said, well, where are they? Well, we've got a group of four or five people meeting in my house. I said, after how long? I, don't, I can't remember it. Six or ten years, you know? I mean, what, what, what could he say? And he said, well, that's boasting. I said, no, it's not. I'm doing what James did. I said, you show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, to turn around to someone and say, all right, you've got something real, prove it. I'll show you what I've got. Now you show me what you've got. He got very offended and upset. Well, what do you expect? Hadn't got anything. And, and that's the way it's got to be. We've got to challenge people. My brother-in-law, for instance, you know, is a professor with a beard. Now, forgive me for getting on about the family. You know, I'll get told off when I get home. But this professor, now there he is with his beard, Fergus. Now, the thing is... <laughs> what? What? Fer Fergus, yeah. Fergus, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> Furry Fergus. Anyway, Fergus, has, um, Fergus, he's got this idea that he's left in the Anglican Church to kind of convert them. Now, I know it can't be right because the Bible speaks against it. He doesn't read his Bible. He didn't even believe in the Old Testament when I went to see him last time. But I hope he, we dissuaded him from that error. But the thing is, you know, he's got a spirit of error. So whatever he does, he jumps from one error to another error to another error. The latest thing he was in was healing of the memories, you know. Well, being a professor, he probably needs it. But um, it, it's a crazy thing when you see that they jump from one error to another error to another. And there are people with a propensity to that. They have no light. Now, the only thing that can happen is when he gets really born of God, he'll get light, and then maybe he'll come. But I doubt if that will ever happen. Now, the reason it won't happen, just that God hadn't done it. And that's a shame. And I doubt that God will. Because he's a professor. And you can't teach a professor. 
And every doctor has a God complex, unless they've, you know, met the Lord. <clears throat> and even then they retain a little of it. Um, but that's just, you know, a work of the flesh that has to be mortified. Um, but they do. Now they're trained to it. Because I was taught in the police, whenever you went into a situation where there was chaos, the first thing you did was you took command of the situation. Now you imagine, you walk into somewhere where there's a mass of things going on and, and terrible trouble, and the first thing you say, what's happened here then? And it's surprising, the moment you ask that question, everyone's on the defensive and you're in control. Now they all start trying to explain but in the time where they're trying to explain, you've got time to collect yourself and collect your thoughts and work out what's happened. Um, and you've got them on the defensive. Now you've taken control. And that's one of the things that I learned was very useful. Although in certain circumstances, when you said, what's happened here? When someone was flaked out on the floor dead and you were given the answer... You nearly killed over laughing, but um, I won't tell you about those stories because they're not printable. Um, but I, I saw some things in the police, and you'd go and you'd ask what had happened here, and you'd get some funny stories. Really, you would. Ah, oh dear. And you can take command of a situation purely uh, by a presence and a bearing, and that you just the uniform used to give it to you because people basically are frightened of policemen. I've only got to see a police car driving behind me and I look at the speed all quick and wonder if I've got my lights on and, you know, am I swerving a bit on the road or what? And the sooner he's out the way, the better I like driving. Don't you find that? Now, not that I'm doing anything particularly wrong, generally, um, but uh, I'm not like Alan, you know. Alan's the author of that book, Gone with the Wind. I've never seen his. I tell you, when I was going down to Capel, I had Ed in the car, Ed and Eleanor in the car, and Ruth, I think, was in, Ashburnham it was, Ruth was in the car, and I was in this line of cars going, going along the road, and I suppose we were doing about 35, and this green thing went by me at such a speed I nearly got out the car I thought I'd stopped <laughs> you know? I thought I must have been parked it went by that quick what yeah yeah well <laughs> it went by quick too on a blind bend of course but I suppose the lady in the front's got good eyes it's guardian angel I reckon um, but there we are. Uh, all I hope is that, you know, he doesn't think just because it's got wings spread out at the back that he can get through that gap because he'll get squashed one day. Oh, dear. What we've got to realize is that we all have kind of feelings about authority, don't we? And... Uh, feel better now. Um, what we have to realize is that 
Good and evil can never mix. Light and dark can never mix. I can't serve two masters. And if you go to John's Gospel, chapter 8, John's Gospel, chapter 8, Whew. verse 30, As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you dis my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now Jesus offers them freedom. He says, Continue in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? Now, I want you to notice uh, their question. When they're told they'll be free, they said, how come? Now, what they relied on was their birth, which made them Jews. What they didn't appreciate was that it wasn't just the birth that was necessary, it was obedience. And in the same way, we're born, but what's necessary to walk in freedom is obedience. Oh, you yield your uh, members' servants to obey? Your slave you are. All right? Whom you obey. And what we have to understand, our birth is correct, but don't get caught out like the Jews did. They said, we're Abraham, see? We're never in bondage to any man. They were in bondage to the devil. They didn't realize it, but um, if you flick over to me in um, flick over to me uh, um, and you'll see in uh, um, Oh, verse 44. You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and bowed not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Um, there you are, he says, you're of your father the devil. Now the Jews were born right, but they didn't live and walk right. And we've got to realize that it's not just our birth that counts, it's our walk and our live. All right? Um, then if you look into 1 John, first epistle of John, which is at the back of your Bible before Revelation. John, John, Jude, Revelation. 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, if I walk in darkness or I walk in the flesh and I say I've got fellowship with God and I'm in fellowship with God, I lie. It's a lie. I'm not doing the truth. So my walk will determine my fellowship. It won't change my relationship, but it certainly determines my fellowship. Do you follow that? My relationship settled, I'm a son of God. But my fellowship will be broken by sin. Not my relationship, but my fellowship. And um, 
then in uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4 we read these words he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him now a man who says I know God I love God and doesn't keep his commandments is what a liar so if you see someone who professes I'm born again you know God's met me filled me with his spirit and he doesn't keep Christ's commandments you know he's a liar God says so so you're either a slave of sin or a slave to obedience one or the other by their fruit you shall know them that's the ministers of God he was talking about there you know you'll know the false ministers because they produce nothing except old women and they usually go to church um, sin shall not have dominion over you what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace God forbid the whole thing Paul's saying is look here just because you've been delivered from the law don't walk into sin you've got to walk in light you've got to walk in life and God will keep you he that says he has fellowship with God and walks in darkness is a lie you can't you've got to walk in the light you've got to obey God you've got to walk in obedience to his word and to his way Paul's whole argument is against free grace being licensed to do what you like. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave to obey God and a slave of God. That is the only freedom a human being can know. There is no such thing as free will. You give yourself to one or you give yourself to the other my recommendation is you present your body as a living sacrifice unto God which is your reasonable service don't you agree all right let's pray father we thank thee for thy word that's so clear lord we pray that we might be those who become ministers and servants of righteousness. Lord, we want to be those who obey from the heart the form of doctrine that's been delivered to us. We obey Christ's commands. We walk in his way. Lord, take every heart and every life. Move in us, we pray, and deal with us as we need dealing with. Thank you that we are sons of God. Thank you we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Now, O oh Lord, we'd be those who don't allow the reign of sin in our mortal flesh, but mortify the deeds of the flesh and yield ourselves and give ourselves over as those who would obey you and yield themselves to you. Lord, let your word get down into every heart. Take it by your spirit, O oh God, and engraft it into our souls. Keep it, O oh God, ever before us, that we might acknowledge thee.
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. Amen. Amen.